You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's the year 1598. Samuel de Champlain is busy planning his first voyage to the Caribbean Sea. William Shakespeare, having had his play Love's Labor Lost, presented before Queen Elizabeth the previous Christmas, is busy writing Much Ado About Nothing and defaulting on his taxes. And Paul Henser, a German lawyer and tutor, is granted a tour of Windsor Castle in the English county of Berkshire. He walks the hallways of the famous Gothic castle and is allowed a glimpse at the sumptuous living spaces of English royalty. A gallery ornamented with countless emblems and figures, bathing rooms sealed and wainscoted with gleaming Italian mirrors, and chambers with massive royal beds covered in luxurious quilts shining with silver and gold. Queen Elizabeth's room is opulently appointed with a fine red marble table, elegant embroidery, and a priceless antique tapestry taken from the King of France. The tourist is shown a cushion, handmade by the Queen herself, a colorful bird of paradise kept as a pet, and one of the Queen's most beloved and most mysterious jewels from her collection, the horn of a unicorn. What Henser doesn't know, as he stands there admiring the anfractuous spire, is that it was discovered two decades prior, on the frozen shore of a distant land in what is known today as Nunavut, Canada. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, a story about the discovery of a mysterious treasure that occurred nearly 300 years before Confederation. Though it was considered an English treasure, it was a product of the now-Canadian landscape, and the details of its discovery can give us insight into European and, specifically, English perspectives in the early days of northern exploration. The object is, in a way, a natural artifact. That is, an object produced by nature, but imbued with meaning and value by humans. As a natural object, it has ties to Inuit culture and heritage, and to notions of the Canadian North. As a royal treasure, it has ties to the social and economic constructs of European monarchs. Altogether, it's part of a larger story of the exploration and exploitation of the Canadian North. And it invites us to take a deeper look at Canadian history and identity. This is the story of the Horn of the Unknown Shore. Part 1. Meta Incognita It had been 55 days since Captain Martin Frobisher weighed anchor in Blackwall, London, and guided a 200-ton ship of the Royal Navy down the River Thames, up the eastern shore to Scotland's Orkney Islands, then west across the Atlantic to Queen Elizabeth's Foreland, a mysterious and barren landscape that the captain had personally discovered and claimed in the name of Her Majesty just one year prior. The weather was fair and favorable all the way to Friesland, when, despite being early summer, the air and ocean grew thick with fog and ice, and the rocky coast of that lost continent loomed like a phantom behind a deadly and impenetrable wall of white. Unable to find safe harbor, the brave crew pushed onward into a land of giants, of monstrous fish and fowl, 
massive fog banks that swallowed ships whole, and terrible storms that drove bitter winds, snow and hail down upon them, and churned up the icy water into lashing, rolling claws that slashed at their vessel and dragged one of their sailors down into frozen oblivion. The next day, as a pale, frost-covered sun surfaced behind them, they watched in awe as huge, uprooted fir trees drifted silently by, looking like frozen serpents skimming through the water. Those who were topside noted the scent of sweetgum in the air. Then the most formidable of giants appeared, the rulers of these waters. Massive mountains of ice, half a mile wide, stretching 70 to 80 fathoms below the surface and towering overhead, sinking onto the shining ship's deck, blue shadows so heavy and imposing, the sailors swore that the vessel dipped and groaned ever so slightly as they passed by. They were similarly astounded when the bravest, or most foolhardy, stood on the taffrail, reached across, and snapped off chunks of ice from these titans, and tasted them finding not the expected brackish tang of seawater, but the full-mouthed clarity of a stream or spring. In time, the choppy blue-green water grew smooth and black, a sure sign that land was close. And then they saw it, the mouth of the strait, a narrow passage between the bare shoulders of two massive continents, which led, they hoped, to the warmer southern sea. But the way was closed, sealed by great sheets of ice stretching from shore to shore. So they waited. They explored the outer islands, climbed to the peak of a mountain, built a cairn, and sounded a trumpet. They looked out over that vast and rugged wilderness, still echoing with the trumpet's call, and prayed to God that they would find fortune on their journey. That night, as if by providence, the west wind cleared the ice from the passage, and their pennant, rippling high above in the frigid wind, urged them forward. The channel was strikingly beautiful. Everything sparkled. The water, the rocky cliffs, the high, snow-covered mountains, the stones on the shore, even the sand below them glittered like gold in the morning light. Five leagues from the mysterious western country, the crew sunk a lead line and found in its tallow bits of smooth white coral and small stones of crystal so clear and pure that they almost glowed. It seemed that the legends were true, that this bleak and foreboding landscape held within its windswept forms untold riches waiting to be discovered. They anchored in a sheltered harbor, then took a ship's boat to the icy shore. No one knows who saw it first. Everyone made the claim, eager to have that honor, that moment of incredible discovery as their own, and that closeness, as fleeting as it was, to the otherworldly and the royal. The truth is, it was hard to miss. A treasure of treasures lay on that frozen beach amidst the foam and forgotten ice that the wind had left behind. A long, pale, spiraled horn gleamed like a beacon on the shore, and the men knew instantly what it was. The remains of the most beautiful and elusive mythological creature in all of creation, sought by emperors, kings, and queens since antiquity. It was the horn of a unicorn. Gently, gently they lifted the horn from the blowing sand and examined its twisting contours. It was incredible, strangely light, pearl in color, longer than any man there was tall, and broken at the tip, 
revealing a smooth and hollow interior that gave the faintest musical tone as the wind played across it. It seemed to be the real thing, made all the more plausible by the sparkling landscape. But how could they be certain? The land contained all manner of beasts, giant deer with ox-like feet, hares, wolves, and bears that fished in the frigid waters. But until they set foot on this shore, they had seen nothing to suggest that a creature of legend lived here where barely a blade of grass could grow. One of the men, schooled in finding and testing valuable ore, had an idea. He had been searching the inlet for spiders, another sure sign of hidden treasure, gold in fact, and sure enough, he found them amongst the rocks and mossy patches that littered the ground. He scooped several into his hands and dropped them one by one into the horn's hollow. The men watched in rapt amazement as each of the arachnids shriveled and died. It was settled. Their seaside experiment had proven the horn's authenticity. Two of the captain's most trusted men carefully lifted the horn, wrapped it in soft skins, and delivered it to his cabin. There it would stay for the rest of the voyage, a royal gift for the Virgin Queen. Two months later, as the trees of Whitehall turned in autumn gold, Captain Frobisher presented the horn to Queen Elizabeth, along with good news of his other spectacular discoveries. The Queen, known for her love of rare and valuable gems and jewelry, was exceptionally pleased by the gift, and commanded that it be reserved as a jewel in her wardrobe of robes. She then declared that the new land Frobisher had discovered would be hereafter known as Meta Incognita, the Unknown Shore, a dangerous place of mysteries and promise of elusive creatures, and, perhaps, the fabled Northwest Passage. A frozen doorway to Kataya, sitting somewhere at the edge of the world. Part 2. On the subject of alicorns. The story you just heard is true. More or less. According to reports, an alicorn the term for a unicorn's horn, was found by Martin Frobisher's men on a glittering ice-covered beach in what we know today as Nunavut, on the 22nd of July, 1577, during the English privateer's second voyage to the region. Measuring around 6 feet or 1.8 meters long, it would have been an impressive specimen, and when it was presented to Queen Elizabeth I later that year, it would have towered over her by a good 7 to 10 inches. The story goes that the queen cherished it, declared it to be the Horn of Windsor, and displayed it in her wardrobe, presumably among her 600-plus pieces of jewelry and at least a few of her over 2,000 gowns. At one time, it was estimated to be worth over 10,000 pounds. Now, to give that a bit of perspective, at that time, 10,000 pounds could have purchased a decent-sized castle. The average nobleman made just over 8 pounds a day, meaning he would have to save for four years to get his own magical horn. By contrast, a lowly actor, one who might perform for the Queen in one of Shakespeare's plays a decade later, would need to save quite a bit longer, about 660 years. Now, some say that Frobisher sold Elizabeth the horn, but that seems unlikely. When your monarch grants you an 18-gun ship of the Royal Navy and ponies up 1,000 pounds of her own money, the least you can do is bring her back a souvenir, albeit an incredibly rare and valuable one. And that leads us to the question, why were these horns so valued? 
Images of unicorns first appeared in early Mesopotamian artwork, and the animals themselves appear in ancient myths from a number of countries, including China and India. The Greek physician Stesias was the first to describe the creature, writing of a large, wild donkey with a white body, purple head, blue eyes, and a white, black, and red horn protruding from its forehead. He claimed that those who drank from its horn were thought to be protected from stomach trouble, epilepsy, and poison. Fast forward to the Middle Ages, and unicorns are stalwart symbols of strength, purity, and fidelity, closely associated with ideas of Christ and the Incarnation. This leads to popular depictions of unicorns in paintings, tapestries, and coats of arms. You need to look no further than Canada's own coat of arms to see one. By the time of the English Renaissance and Elizabeth's reign, unicorn horn was a hot commodity. Peddled by traders from distant lands, alicorns were sold as a potent counterpoison and effective cure-all for whatever ails you. Every reputable apothecary was certain to have it on hand, usually in the form of a finely ground powder that you could add to your wine or mix with other ingredients to create a haline salve or plastic bandage. King Henry VIII used a number of cures to treat his chronic leg ulcers that were made from all kinds of ingredients, from fruits and flowers to black poppies and poisonous nightshade. But perhaps the most expensive and surprising ingredient was unicorn horn, found in at least ten of his treatments. Martin Luther was a fan as well. On the night of his death in 1546, Luther drank a cup of wine mixed with unicorn horn in the hope of alleviating the pain in his breast. Its mythical status, powerful symbolism, purported health benefits, and, of course, huge price tag made the rare and elusive unicorn horn the must-have accessory for every ruler. They became royal scepters and holy croziers. Danish rulers were crowned on a throne made, in part, with alicorns. King Francis I of France had his mounted in solid gold, while Ivan the Terrible reportedly called for his unicorn horn on his deathbed, hoping it would save him. The magical staff, decorated with diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and emeralds, proved to be a false comfort. But that didn't stop his successor from using it for his own coronation. You simply couldn't call yourself a ruler unless you had one. Or twelve, as was the case for Spain's Philip II. Pieces of these prized panaceas were fashioned into amulets, rings, and knives, while larger specimens were made into magical goblets, used by nervous nobles to counteract the poisons of would-be assassins. Queen Elizabeth herself reportedly had one, and the belief seemed to be that the cup would explode if poison ever touched it. Eventually, people became skeptical about the magical power and, of course, the origin of the horns they so cherished. According to historian Nigel Suckling, Elizabeth's successor, King James I, bought his own horn for £10,000 and immediately decided to test it by poisoning his servant. The poison worked as promised. The horn did not. European cartographer Gerhard Mercator ultimately exposed the centuries-long deception, revealing that these horns weren't sourced from unicorns at all. Danish zoologist Ole Verm followed suit with a public lecture, but despite all the whistleblowing, it wasn't quite the earth-shattering revelation that they had hoped for. By then, the unicorn myth was so ingrained in European society, so important to noble egos, and so integral to international trade, that many seemed more than willing to continue the charade. 
But over time, the truth spread throughout Europe. Prices plummeted, and by 1746, unicorn horn was no longer a staple in English apothecaries. So what is the truth? What were these horns that royalty were bedazzling with precious jewels, using as drinkware, and displaying in their wardrobe alongside their exotic pets? And where did they come from? Well, don't tell my toddler, but unicorns probably don't exist. Larger horns, used for goblets and other vessels, were more than likely sourced from a rhinoceros, while the longer, twisted, more elegant horns, like Queen Elizabeth's legendary Horn of Windsor, weren't really horns at all. They were tusks, taken from that elusive and fascinating northern whale, the narwhal. Part 3. Toward the Sky the vast majority of Europe's alleged alicorns is thought to have come from Norse traders who sailed the northern waters and likely collected narwhal horns through hunting, scavenging, and trading with the indigenous of Greenland and Nunavut. And here I'd like to bring up another Canadian connection. Many of these traders came from the Norse settlements on Greenland, which were founded by Eric the Red, who was the father of Leif Erikson, the explorer said to be the first European to set foot on continental North America and the founder of the short-lived settlement of Lanso Meadows, Newfoundland. As the alicorn business grew, it became difficult to hide the fact that so many unicorn horns were found at sea, so the logical conclusion was that there were sea unicorns as well. These creatures, often represented as a large fish with a horse-like head, scruffy mane, and long, pointed horn, began to appear in paintings, travelogues, bestiaries, maps of North America, and even medical books. Later, once narwhals were more commonly known, both creatures would appear side by side in some illustrations, just in case you wanted help telling them apart. For a time, it seems, many Europeans believed that both creatures lived in the sea. One just happened to be more magical than the other. But if you came across a twisted tusk on an icy beach, how could you be sure that it came from the aquatic animal of legend? Well, that's exactly the conundrum that Captain Frobisher and his men faced on that western shore. On that fateful summer's day in 1577, when English sailors found a six-foot horn on an ice-covered beach, it was actually attached to some sort of enormous decomposing sea creature. Now, this fact wasn't kept secret. It's described in at least two accounts of the voyage. But it has often been omitted by storytellers, presumably to avoid complicating the tale. Whether or not it was magical was the key question. The sailors knew, thanks to folklore, that the horn of the unicorn should have counterpoison properties. So they tested it, just like I mentioned in my story, by dropping a few spiders inside the shattered tip. The spiders apparently died instantly, and that was all the proof they needed. In their minds, the magic of the horn had neutralized the poisonous creatures, and they had an authentic sea unicorn on their hands. Of course, we now know that it was simply a dead narwhal that had washed ashore. A creature that is, perhaps, not as magical as the sea unicorn, but no less interesting. As far as we know, their unique tusks, found mostly on males and capable of growing up to 10 feet long, have no anti-poison or spider-killing abilities. They are, in fact, enormous canine teeth that scientists believe are used to sense the environment around them, communicate, attract a mate, and stun fish to make them easier to catch. 
narwhals live year-round in the icy Arctic waters of Russia, Norway, Greenland, and Canada, and have been an invaluable resource to the indigenous people of the North since time immemorial. They've long been an important source of nutrition and natural resources. Their outer skin is an excellent source of vitamin C, while their hide was, at one time, used to fashion weather-resistant dog harnesses. Their sinew served as a durable thread, their blubber as clean and efficient fuel. Even their tusks, when not sold to traders, served as excellent walking sticks and building material. Long before they were identified as the unicorn of the sea, narwhals were best known by a different name, Kilalugak Kernertuk, Inuktitut for the one that is good at curving itself toward the sky. And they have a story all their own. Now, it's important to note that the Inuit inhabit a vast amount of space, from Alaska to Canada to Greenland. And though the groups are culturally similar, it would be a mistake to assume all of their oral traditions are the same. That being said, the legend of the woman who became a narwhal is one of the most widely known legends from the North. One version was recorded in 1899 by anthropologist A.L. Krober, apparently told to him by people from Smith Sound, an Arctic sea passage between the east coast of Canada's Ellesmere Island and the west coast of Greenland. According to Professor Marie-France Boissonneau and her essay, Beauty and the Enchanted Beast, the Narwhal in the Canadian Cultural Landscape, the tale was also widely told in the Mackenzie area of Nunavut and the Northwest Territories and along the central coast of British Columbia. Howard Norman includes a similar story in his book Northern Tales, where it's attributed to a Greenland Enoch named Piapula, who shared it with Michael and Severance Rosegood in 1975. Unfortunately, I lack the cultural knowledge to authentically or comfortably provide you with a creative retelling of the story or an in-depth analysis, but I can give you a brief summary of the narrative and its themes. Based on the sources I just mentioned, the story goes like this. Once long ago, a young blind boy lived far out in the wilderness with his sister and grandmother, some say mother or stepmother. Food was hard to find but one day a bear appeared just outside their home. Though the boy was blind, he picked up his bow and the grandmother helped him aim. The arrow struck true and killed the bear, but the grandmother, in her greed and hunger, lied to the boy, telling him that he missed his shot and that the bear had run away. The grandmother prepared and cooked the bear in secret, and though he could hear and smell the meat cooking, his grandmother continued to lie to him, insisting that she had no food. That night, the grandmother and sister ate the bear while the boy went hungry. But the sister secretly hid some of the meat in her clothing and fed it to her starving brother while their grandmother slept. The boy's suspicions were finally confirmed. Later, outside the home, the boy met a large bird, who took him up into the air and down into either a lake or ocean, diving again and again, deeper and deeper beneath the water, until the boy's eyesight was restored. With his blindness cured, the boy returned to his home and surprised his grandmother, who then tried to make excuses for the bearskin that he could now see in their home. A few days went by, and then the boy and his grandmother went whale hunting with a harpoon. Using his grandmother to hold the line by wrapping it around her leg, the boy, now an excellent shot, speared a small white whale and pulled it in. Excited by the catch, the grandmother urged the boy to catch another, 
He did as he was asked, but the second whale was much bigger than the first and was only injured by the weapon. It pulled hard on the line and dragged the grandmother, who was still attached to the rope, across the ice and into the water. She yelled at the boy to throw her a knife so that she could cut herself free, but he either didn't listen or didn't act in time. A whirlpool formed around her as she struggled, twisting her hair into a tight, thick twirl as she was dragged deeper and deeper into the water. As she drowned, she was transformed into the first narwhal, and her hair, twisted to a point at the top of her head, became the iconic tusk. This is a story that has been shared from generation to generation, from coast to coast to coast. The details vary slightly here and there, but the main themes are often the same. Greed, deception, suspicion, exploitation, and abuse. Now that last theme is particularly noteworthy because, as Professor Boissonneau notes in her essay, while in this story the narwhal is linked to a greedy and abusive maternal figure, there is another traditional story from Nunavut that has a very different narrative turn, but a very similar theme. In a 2003 report prepared for the Canadian Department of Justice, within a section about violence, families, and the police, the author mentions a traditional Inuit story where, quote, the narwhal is actually a victim of violence, who fled up a cliff to avoid her abuser. When it appeared he would catch her, she twisted her hair into a long plate and lowered herself over the cliff into the sea. The famous tusk of the narwhal is a remnant of her twisted hair. The mottled white skin of the narwhal is said to be marked with her bruises." End quote. Now that you've heard these two stories, I'd like to tell you one more that shares many of the same themes. And to do that, we need to go back to Captain Frobisher and the voyage in which he found the famous Horn of Windsor. Part 4. A Question of Worth Captain Frobisher's second voyage is noteworthy for a few reasons. The first two you already know. First, he thought he was exploring the Northwest Passage, a strait that cut through two different continents, with America on one side and China on the other. Of course, he was mistaken. He was actually exploring a large bay on Kikiktoluk, most commonly known today as Baffin Island in Nunavut. And that mistake is understandable. Baffin Island is massive, actually twice the size of the UK. Second, Frobisher returned with the alleged horn of a sea unicorn and delivered it to a grateful queen. He was wrong about that as well. We now know that the magical horn was just a tusk from a perfectly normal narwhal. But some faulty cartography and an overpriced knick-knack weren't the only things that Frobisher brought back to England. Though the plucky privateer's official motivation was exploration, the people and companies who backed his expeditions were far more interested in finding the rich deposits of gold said to be hidden somewhere within this unknown shore. He must have felt a profound sense of accomplishment then when he carried home at the end of the season roughly 200 tons of what he thought was valuable golden ore. And if you can sense a theme developing here, you're right. The gold that Frobisher brought to England turned out to be worthless, just simple amphibolite. That huge amount of quarried rock, painstakingly pried from the frozen ground, yielded about 100,000 times less gold than they expected. Some historians believe that assayers in London had secretly doctored one of Frobisher's earlier ore samples to secure more investments. 
The scam caused a scandal, bankrupted one of the expedition's key corporate backers, and contributed to one of its main promoters being locked away in debtor's prison. Mistaken maps, spurious horns, fake gold. Ironically, it seems that the only thing of real value that Frobisher brought back to England were the things that he and his men seemed to value the least. The lives of three people, an Inuit man, woman, and child. Between the exploration, the fraud, and the Horn of Windsor, you don't hear much about the three people who were kidnapped by Frobisher and his men, though they attracted considerable attention at the time. The accounts of Frobisher's second voyage describe their interactions with the local indigenous population as being full of mutual suspicion and distrust. On his first voyage one year earlier, the captain lost five men and a ship's boat after they left to parley with a group of Inuit and never returned. The English believed they had been kidnapped, murdered, and possibly eaten. But oral history from the area suggests that they likely survived, lived with the Inuit for a while, and then attempted to sail back to England, never to be seen again. Frobisher took an Inuit man hostage in retaliation and sailed away. On his second voyage, Frobisher was eager to find his lost crew members and decided to either develop a friendly relationship with the Inuit, or, barring that, kidnap a few people and exchange them for the men he was forced to leave behind. The voyage's first victim was kidnapped from one of the islands in the northeastern part of the bay. The English sailors landed, met with some of the locals, and began to trade. Though both parties were suspicious of each other, the trading seemed to be going well, with the English doing their best to appear friendly. It wouldn't last. Apparently frustrated by the time and effort it takes to make friends, Frobisher's men suddenly stopped their deception, shed their friendly veneer, and violently tackled the two closest men. A struggle ensued. One man escaped, while the other was dragged to the ship and locked up. Now a prisoner, they hoped to teach him English, and then compel him to serve as a translator and guide. A short time later, the crew of another ship in the expedition were exploring the southwestern shore when they came across a small Inuit camp. After watching the locals flee, the English went inside their tents, stole one of their dogs, and left behind a handful of quote-unquote trifles, described as knives, bells, and glasses before leaving. After exploring a bit more, they decided to hassle the Inuit a second time, and discovered that they had moved camp further up the sound, a wise precaution considering that a potential enemy was near. The English sailors divided into two groups, chased after the Inuit as they fled on their kayaks, forced them to shore, and engaged in a skirmish, killing between three and five people and capturing three others, an elderly woman and a young mother with her infant son strapped to her back. Reading the report from the voyage can almost feel like you're going crazy. It's so hypocritical. One moment, the English author is complaining about how the Inuit seem overly and unjustifiably suspicious of Frobisher and his crew. The next moment, they're describing how the crew violently forced one of the Inuit into their boat beneath a flurry of defensive arrows. The author rambles on about how the Inuit are uncivilized and have strange beliefs, and then, in the same breath, explains how, when the secondary crew captured the older lady on the southwestern shore, they suspected that she might be a, quote, devil or witch, end quote, due to some deformity. So, they stripped off her clothes to see whether or not she was, quote, cloven-footed, end quote. Realizing she was just an ordinary woman, they decided she was too ugly to keep, and so let her go. 
Just before that, during the firefight, the Inuit hunters who were wounded by Frobisher's men threw themselves over the cliff into the icy water below. To the author who recorded the details of this encounter, their actions weren't a desperate attempt to avoid being captured alive by an unknown and ruthless enemy, but evidence that the Inuit were, quote, void of humanity and ignorant of what mercy means, end quote. Of course, being wholly humane and merciful themselves, the English then shot at a defenseless woman, wounded her child with an arrow, then kidnapped them both. And the hypocrisy continues. When they returned to England, the male Inuk, named Calicho by his captors, was the subject of numerous portraits and gave kayaking and duck hunting demonstrations before enthusiastic crowds in the port of Bristol. Unfortunately, the sailors who had first captured him on Baffin Island had unknowingly broken his ribs during the violent struggle to get him on board. The untended injury led to complications. He grew increasingly ill and died, likely of pneumonia, on November 8, 1577. The doctor who attended him and eventually performed his autopsy would later lament how Calicho was too foolish and uncivilized to accept the modern and completely civilized treatment of bloodletting. The doctor goes on to note how he personally was, quote, bitterly grieved and saddened, end quote, not by the death of his patient, of course, but by the fact that Queen Elizabeth would never get to meet him. Unfortunately, the Inuk woman and baby suffered a similar fate. A few days after Calicho's funeral, the woman, dubbed Arnok by her kidnappers, fell ill, most likely with measles, and died on November 12th. Her orphaned child, named Nutak by his captors, was given to a nurse and whisked away to London. They hoped that at least he could meet the queen, but the child died of the same sickness a short time later. I bring all of this up because, in a way, the events of Frobisher's second voyage foreshadow the future actions of the British Empire within the lands now known as Canada. We're usually taught that the settlement of Cooper's Cove, Newfoundland, was England's first attempt to settle in Canada back in 1610. But it was actually in 1578, during Frobisher's third voyage to the area, when the first attempts at establishing an English colony were made. Encouraged by the 200 tons of unproven ore that he had brought from Baffin Island back to England, the Crown ordered Frobisher to establish two mines and settle 100 men in the area. The hope was that these men, mostly miners provided with barracks and provisions for 18 months, would mine and stockpile the supposed gold, filling England's coffers, supporting their claim over the territory, and providing the necessary base and funds for future excursions to navigate the Northwest Passage. Fortunately for them, much of the supplies required to found a settlement was either lost or spoiled by the time they arrived, so, after mining what they could, they buried some timber and other supplies for safekeeping, built a small stone house as an experiment to see how English buildings might survive the Arctic winter, and left. Upon their return this third time, now hauling 1,000 tons of rock, they learned that their ore was worthless. Captain Frobisher would never return to the island, and it would be a decade before any English explorer would return to the New World with the hope of founding a settlement. Less than a century after Frobisher's last voyage, the Hudson's Bay Company was founded with the same motivations and objectives, namely greed and exploitation, to find and exploit natural resources including gold and silver, help England claim the land inhabited by the Inuit and the First Nations, and locate the ever-elusive Northwest Passage. Considering all of these factors, 
we might begin to see how the strange historical and cultural artifact that is the Horn of Windsor can serve as a symbol with multiple meanings and associations. Part 5. Signs and Symbols Queen Elizabeth's Horn of Windsor was nothing more than a simple piece of sea drift, the remnants of a dead whale that had washed up on some random Arctic shore. But European society transformed it into a unicorn horn, a priceless jewel with magical qualities fit for a queen. In that sense, the horn is a fitting symbol for the fraudulent claims that powered no fewer than two expeditions to Meta Incognita in search of non-existent gold. Going further, the centuries-long demand for narwhal tusks from the Arctic Ocean as signifiers of elite power and wealth mirrors the demand for Canadian beaver pelts in the 17th and 18th centuries. The market and value for both of these natural resources was influenced, in part, by the social constructs of folklore and fashion, and made them symbols of status. What's more, because the horn was in reality a narwhal tusk, it can be viewed with an additional perspective that is informed by the narwhal's cultural importance to the Inuit and the themes found in their stories. As we've learned, in the folkloric landscape of Nunavut, the narwhal and its iconic tusk can represent both the exploited and the exploiter, the victim and the victimizer, similar to how the legendary Horn of Windsor is both inherently of the North and historically of Europe. As a natural element of the northern landscape, it can represent the three Inuit people who were stolen from their home at the same time it was pulled from the shore. As an icon of the crown's power and command of obedience, it can also represent the kingdom that sought to exploit them and their land. As an artifact, it has historical, economic, geographic, sociological, and cultural ties to both the Inuit and the United Kingdom and thus to the complicated construct of Canadian identity. As a pure and protected natural landscape, as the true North strong and free, and as a constitutional monarchy, where every act of government is still carried out in the name of the Crown. You may be wondering, what happened to all of the players in this story? Well, the Inuit of Baffin Island lived on the way they always had. They watched Frobisher come and go for the third and final time, and when the last ship finally disappeared on the horizon, they salvaged what they could from the supplies that the English left behind. According to the Canadian Museum of History, the blacksmith's anvil became the object of a weightlifting challenge that was enjoyed for generations, while the large stocks of English oak were used, in part, to build durable sleds. Back in England, the 1,200 tons of worthless black ore that Frobisher carried home from Nunavut proved somewhat useful at least. Though the stockpile didn't contain any meaningful trace of gold, it was used to pave roads and build walls. Some of it can still be seen today in the stone wall surrounding a manor house in Dartford, England. Stories of Captain Frobisher's voyages became part of the historical traditions of the Inuit of Baffin Island. They were passed down for centuries, from one generation to the next. In 1861, when an American reporter traveled to the Arctic to investigate the Franklin expedition, the Inuit of Baffin Island told him of Kodlunarn, or White Men's Island, the headquarters of Frobisher's mining expeditions nearly 300 years prior. Understandably, the gold scandal caused Captain Frobisher to suffer a heavy blow to his reputation as a reliable explorer and adventurer. 
Sensing that no one would trust him with an expedition anytime soon, he exchanged his spyglass for a sword and went on to fight the Spanish. He would die in 1594 from complications resulting from a gunshot to the thigh. Nunavut's Frobisher Bay is named after him, and his name appears on numerous road signs in Ontario, New Brunswick, and Manitoba. The Inuit who were kidnapped by Frobisher's men were buried in England. Calicho and Arnock were buried in St. Stephen's Parish Church in Bristol, where they are described in the burial register as heathen man and heathen woman. Separated from his mother, little Newtok was buried without record at St. Olive's Church in London. Their real names were never learned and are lost to time. As for the horn itself, its fate is unknown. We know that another similar horn was stored in the Tower of London, and that both went missing some time during the English Civil War, between 1642 and 1651. Many believe that it was destroyed, along with a significant portion of the crown jewels, by Oliver Cromwell and his followers. Today, outsiders still explore and exploit the northern landscape as they continue to search for a fortune, not so much in lucrative trade routes or rich deposits of gold, but in oil. And narwhal tusks never quite lost that magic and mystique. Though centuries have passed and its alleged medicinal properties have been debunked, narwhal tusks are still used in some cultures to treat fever, toxicity, measles, pain, and venereal disease. Meanwhile, the effects of climate change on habitat and food sources, as well as increased shipping traffic and noise pollution, oil spills, and excessive hunting in some parts of the world has caused the narwhal to be labeled as nearly threatened since 2008. It's estimated that three-quarters of the world's narwhal population can be found in the Canadian Arctic, and that fact has contributed to the species becoming a beloved symbol of the North. These little whales have taken their rightful place in heraldry, right beside the unicorn, that strange, socially constructed animal that they helped popularize. You'll find narwhals in the coat of arms of both the Northwest Territories and Nunavut, as well as in the armorial bearings of the Royal Heraldry Society of Canada and the Royal Canadian Geographic Society. It's interesting seeing this symbol of the northern landscape, so important to the natural heritage and culture of northern people, become part of an antiquated, emblematic form, inherited from England and traditionally used to communicate a Euro-Canadian identity. Somehow, this funny-looking whale from one of the most remote places on the planet has played a significant and complex role in the history and culture of strikingly different communities. And that influence has spanned continents and centuries, right up to the present day. With ties to so many landscapes, the Horn of Windsor is, in some ways, a symbol of this complexity. Of the natural and the manufactured. Of exploration and exploitation. Of the indigenous and the colonizer. In short, of Canada itself. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember that everything can have meaning given the right context. Even the things that wash up on some distant, unknown shore. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Braden Alexander. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. 
If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.